Is less more with Miami-Dade's new public bus system? Is citizens using questionable home inspections to drop policies? Will Argentine voters drop a bombshell on Sunday? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, I'll talk with Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava about the Better Bus Network the county launched this week. Will it help bring our dysfunctional public transit system into the 21st century? We'll also look at a WLRN investigation that finds citizens' property insurance is using unlicensed inspectors as it moves to drop homes from its burgeoning coverage roles. And we'll ask whether Argentina's democracy is poised to elect an anti-democratic president. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. We rarely have positive news to report about South Florida public transit, which is usually described as woefully inadequate. Our region seems chained to a development culture that demands we do everything by car except walk our dogs. But this week we saw some unusual optimism on the public transit front in Miami-Dade County. On Monday, Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava launched the Better Bus Network, the project, which began four years ago, is the first major redesign of Miami-Dade's bus routes, stops, and schedules in almost 40 years. The new system is more streamlined, and many folks will admittedly find their familiar routes eliminated, but it's billed as a way to get more bus riders where they're going more directly and more frequently. Local bus, uh, excuse me, local public transit advocates seem happy with the better bus rollout. Kathy Dos Santos, the co-executive director of the nonprofit Transit Alliance Miami, had this to say at Monday's launch. The new network is not just a list of routes realigned uh, and schedules updated. The better bus is a new way of thinking about how we make transit decisions in our county. Not everyone so far has been as pleased with the Better Bus plan, such as James Hughes, a writer interviewed this morning by WLRN's Joshua Ceballos. First day, bus didn't show up. I go all the way up to Sunny Isles. I got off at 11 o'clock. The bus didn't come to 1 o'clock in the morning. This is the fourth day of their new rollout, and the bus is still running late. There's nothing improved. There's nothing better. It's gotten worse, man. Either way, to kick off the Better Bus Network, Miami-Dade is letting folks ride the entire public transit system for free between now and January 1st. I spoke with Mayor Levine Cava yesterday about the new system and why it could be a big step toward the modern public transit we need here. Mayor Levine Cava, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I want to start with a quote I saw on social media this week from a public transit advocate celebrating the launch of the Better Bus Network. He said that before this project, Miami-Dade's bus routes were the county's most creative form of abstract art. Why, <laughs> why in the past was so much of Miami-Dade's bus route system what critics called unreliable, nonsensical, inefficient, in short, dysfunctional? Mm. So naturally, I wasn't around when that was designed. (laughs) And much has changed in the world in the last 35 plus years. So we have different concentrations of population, different job centers, different traffic patterns. So clearly, a redesign was well overdue. I think it's uh, a very, very important uh, moment 
We're trying to get people to adapt, to change. We have a lot of transit-dependent riders. Some of them were on these meandering routes that um, really did not pick up that many passengers. So we had to realign to make sure that where most people need transit, we can have more frequent, reliable transit so that people will uh, get to places they need to go quicker, get to more places they want to go quicker, and those who have a choice will get out of their cars and use transit. Why were so many relatively unused routes kept online for so long, though? You know, inertia, um, change aversion, um, maybe commissioners whose districts had certain lines that they uh, wanted to be sure residents were protected. And we had to work very, very hard to make sure that we did not leave people in the dust and that we were creative in, in making sure that everybody could be served, but mm-hmm. also putting more resources towards the, the ones that would uh, really improve reliability and uh, efficiency. So what are the most important changes and improvements you feel the Better Bus Network will bring to users now? The most important thing is more people will have access to more frequent service than we could have imagined. One half million more people are now closer to frequent service. So that's a game changer for public transit. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, not just on the weekdays, but on the weekends too, more access to job centers. Uh, You've got uh, bus routes that may have been through 30 minutes every 30 or an hour. Uh, Now we have 19 routes that are every 15-minute frequency. Uh, We have two routes that are down to 8- or 10-minute frequency. That is a draw. People, you know, if you miss the bus, and of course people have apps and they know the bus schedule, but the bus might be off a minute or two, it's it's critical that they know that they're not going to uh, miss an appointment or get to a job late uh, because another bus won't come for such a long period of time. So that reliability is is really the most critical feature. At first glance, though, it looks as though bus riders are actually getting less, fewer routes and about a thousand fewer stops, for example. I guess I should ask, why under this plan is less more, in essence? Yeah, so everybody has a path, and we've added Metro Connect as an on-demand service for those who might feel left behind. Uh, but in fact, we've been working with everyone to help them reorganize their their uh, their path. Some might have to walk uh, an extra block or, or two. Uh, and, you know, we've also increased, we are in the process of increasing bus shelters. And uh, that will help because we know it's brutal out there with sun and rain. We want our, our passengers to be comfortable while they're waiting for the bus. Uh, but um, in fact, we've had a very positive response. Uh, We have several hundred ambassadors who've been out there for weeks going over people's uh, bus routes, helping them with a new uh, plan, a new map uh, if needed. I personally rode the bus and rail yesterday and talked to many, many satisfied customers. Um, I think overall people recognize that uh, it is, in fact, more. 
not less. We, we should remind people there is a new online trip planner um, on the MiamiDade.gov site to help writers navigate the new routes, stops, and schedules. But what are the main frustrations you're, you're expecting them to experience as they start using the new system? And, and what's your advice about how to get through those frustrations at yeah, the outset? For, for sure. Like uh, one lady was very sad. Her J bus was gone. Mm-hmm. And when it was explained to her that it's the same bus, but it's the 36 because it rides on 36th Street, she was satisfied. Uh, but I, I do think change is just difficult for people and that it, things will settle in. We've had really minimal disruption. For some, it is um, a different route. So we do have not only the trip planner online, but we have ambassadors. You can call 311 to get uh, advice and instruction. Mm-hmm. And and we have personalized help. We have people still riding the system at bus stops to make sure that uh, people are not uh, lost or confused. And this is a big reason we've gone to free fares for the balance of the year, six weeks free fare, right. so that people can uh, try it, uh, get used to it if they haven't used it before. Uh, if they take a wrong bus, they're not penalized. They don't have to pay an extra fare. Our drivers are lo- are learning the new routes as well, and we want to be sure that they're not distracted about fares when they're focused on right. the route. And I do I do want to get to that free fare feature of this in a second. When you and I talked earlier this year about the urgency of, of improving public transit, we agreed that one of the biggest reasons was how hard it is for Miami-Dade's low-wage labor force to get to jobs. How does the Better Bus Network enhance that situation for for the folks in this county? Yeah, I I think that the designers were hyper-focused on the job situation. So, again, we've got um, 150,000 more jobs are within walking distance of frequent transit service. So that means increasing jobs near frequent service from 29% to 43% on weekdays. It's, it's a huge increase of access to jobs on these frequent routes. Uh, two-thirds of low-income residents will be able to reach at least 1,000 more jobs within 60 minutes on Saturdays. That was a, a chief complaint, that the weekend schedule was in, inadequate. Uh, certainly, we, our workers are around uh, the clock, 24-7 and seven days a week. We've got more than a half million residents reaching at least 20,000 more jobs by transit in 45 minutes or less on weekdays. So those are some significant changes that were part of the redesign. Uh, Also, the two busiest lines are Flagler Street to FIU and Collins Avenue. Those are the most most, uh, frequented. And those services go to 10 minutes and eight minutes each, respectively. Mm-hmm. Now, as, as you were mentioning earlier, from now until January 1st, Miami-Dade's buses and metro rail trains will be free to ride for, for, for the reasons you were pointing out before. Uh, but but again, r- remind us in, in the broader sense why you made that decision. As if you said, to give people something... a chance to try it out, but I imagine there were some other reasons as well. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a kind of an industry good practice when you're launching a new service to do a fare-free period. It's been tried successfully in other major cities, including Baltimore, Houston, Richmond, and Cleveland. So it's it's always been on our, uh, in our toolbox as something we could do, especially we have other lines coming on, the South Dade Transit Way and others, and we'll explore that. Uh, So so that's that's it, it's to try it, you'll like it. 
also just to make sure that any confusion isn't resolved at the expense of the fair payer. Uh, those those really are the the two main reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, your hope is that the, the those two months of free fairs will attract enough new riders, meaning uh, new riders who you're betting will be impressed by the efficiency of the new system, to recoup the estimated nine million dollars the county will lose between now and the end of the year. Are are you confident that's a good bet? That has been proven effective in these other cities where they've tried it. And we are working hard uh, not only to get people uh, navigation support, but to really plug the system as as a great way to go. So it's the holidays. Take a ride. <laughs> uh, and we're go- you're going to see us gearing up our, our outreach efforts to to get people to try it and like it. Where do you see the areas in the county that are going to experience the the biggest loss of routes and stops. Uh, is there any idea as, as to who will be most impacted in terms of losing their, the routes they had before? So when I was county commissioner, because this has been going on for four plus years, there was a lot of um, concern on some parts of, of Way South Dade, uh, particularly, of course, that was my district, and I know that in the design, that was definitely taken into account. Um, I think there are some areas where people are used to a certain uh, system and they are having to reorient that has some some pain points. But again, the, the routes exist for them uh, still. Mm-hmm. And we are looking at any of those uh, points of, of pain or disappointment to see if adjustments can be made. And in the interim, we do have this Metro Connect service that people are are utilizing. Uh, And does that include the local shuttle buses that are supposed to help uh, pick up the slack? So uh, we've been talking about local shuttle buses. Right now, it's the individual cars, Metro Connect. Um, but, But certainly, it could be that on certain routes, we would be adding something that would accommodate more passengers. Mm-hmm. And for those local shuttle buses, they, they need to use an app then uh, to, in order to uh, to access? Yeah, Metro Connect has a phone number associated with it as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yes, there's an app, but uh, people can also call. And again, 311 is our universal. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, you know, quick to respond, trained operators, and help people navigate uh, all of the, the transit challenges. Okay. Finally, Mayor, I wanted to ask you, how important a step would you say this is in terms of finally putting Miami-Dade on track to have a real public transit system? And and by that, I mean one that a metropolitan area of this size should have but doesn't. How, how, how critical a step is this Better Bus Network project in yeah. that regard? So we were, when I moved here 40-plus years ago, uh, we were much more suburban. Uh, we did not have the density in our urban areas as we do today. So we do need to get on board with good transit. World-class cities have world-class transit. So the Metro Rail is our, our spine and is very effective. A mover, of course, is, is great in the downtown area. But this is bringing us into the uh, 21st century, no doubt about it. And we are excited combined with the uh, SMART um, program of, of routes, the South Dade Transit Way, the work on the Northeast and North Corridor, the express buses on 836 uh, that are gaining in popularity. So all of these things working together 
is going to to get us where we need to be. Okay. Mayor Levine Kava, thanks as always. Thank you so much, Tim, for your interest, bringing this information to your listeners. And again, MiamiDay.gov slash BetterBus and uh, 311. That was my conversation yesterday with Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava about the country's new better, excuse me, the county's new better bus network. As she said, you can find more information at MiamiDade.gov. We'll also have information later on the South Florida Roundup page at WLRN.org. Still to come, a WLRN investigation into controversial home inspections used by citizens' property insurance. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Anyone in Florida who has a policy with citizens' property insurance knows there's a good chance they may not have it for much longer. As the state's property insurance crisis keeps getting darker, homeowners keep flocking to Citizens, a public company whose premiums are usually cheaper than private insurers. The problem is too many homeowners have flocked to Citizens, which is carrying more than 1.3 million policies today, and the company's working hard to drop more of them off to private carriers. But in its drive to jettison policies, has Citizens started using questionable practices? In a report this week, WLRN investigative reporter Danny Rivero found the company is suddenly ordering hundreds of thousands of home inspections that are often used to raise premiums or cancel policies. But the inspections are unlicensed and often make glaring mistakes that often jeopardize a citizen's policy. It's just one more specter Florida residents can expect to face now as the state's insurance catastrophe deepens. Have you been subject to one of these citizens' inspections? Is it right to use unlicensed inspectors? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio to talk about his report on the unlicensed citizens' inspectors is WLRN investigative reporter Danny Rivero. Danny, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Tim. Always a pleasure. Help us clarify something right off the bat here. Is it kosher for citizens to use unlicensed agents to conduct property inspections that could result in homeowners losing the insurance policies that in most cases they need to keep their homes? There's really two kind of answers to that. Um, on, on the one hand, technically, legally, I, I have been told, and the law is really complicated here, but I have been told by people that know that this is not technically violating any laws, violating any regulations. Okay. On the other hand, this is very far from the industry standard. This is not common practice. This is not something that other companies are doing. Other companies, um, I've you know, according to people I've talked to, could be subjected to lawsuits scrutinizing this kind of thing if private companies engaged in this. Mm -hmm. um, but citizens, because it's a public, public company, company right, is not yeah. subject to a lot of the same lawsuits and liabilities. So they're, mm -hmm. it's kind of a yes and no. This is kosher and it's really not kosher. Right. Okay, so then let's go back to the beginning and tell us how you discovered that these citizens' inspections were happening in the first place. I have to honestly give a shout out to our listeners here on WLRN, to be honest, because it was a, a listener 
Robert Mitchell out of Fort Lauderdale, who actually just wrote me an email. Well, sometimes that's how the best investigative journalism it's, starts. It's, you know? it's really true. He wrote me an email and said, hey, I have this it is this issue with citizens. They put all these false things on my on my report. I'm fighting them. Talk to him a couple of weeks later. And he came back and said, I did it. I won. I beat them. You know, like, please report on this. There's all these errors on it. And I went over to his house, talked to him. We looked at it. I verified a lot of the things that they put on the original report and the second report were just flatly not true. Yeah. Um, and then we looked further into it and we realized the people that came out here were not licensed. These were This was not a licensed company. So it kind of started snowballing the more we looked into it. Then I started looking at contracts and mm-hmm. seeing that this was not just a one-off with one Right, where there's one homeowner. example, there's, go, there's this, going to be others. This yeah. is This is a massive program that was launched right. a couple of years ago by citizens. Why is citizens suddenly ramping up these inspections? And I do mean suddenly because we've seen an astronomical increase in the number of them in just the past couple of years, right? Right. Um, and, and I was honestly very surprised when I, when I found the reports that, that had that data in them. And it is publicly available, in, but you just have to find it in, in the citizens' databases. Uh-huh. But in 2019, citizens ordered 2,200 inspections of policies that they were holding. And then this year, they're ordering... By the end of the year, 300,000. So it's more than 100 times what they were ordering right. a few years ago. It's 100 fold. fold. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, and is that 300,000 number the main reason Citizens is using inspectors who aren't licensed by the state of Florida? I mean, that, that obviously is the most striking thing about all of this. I mean, on, on the one hand, you can understand their concern that hiring licensed inspectors for 300,000 jobs would be pretty expensive. But then again, on the other hand, doing it on the cheap with less than expert inspectors sort of raises eyebrows, doesn't it? It raises many eyebrows. And and on, on the one level, you know, we, we do have to keep in mind it's a public company. It's underwritten by mm-hmm. taxpayers, by residents. Right. Um, I made the point that its premiums are often cheaper. They, than, they, right. they are cheaper. But on on that same point. You know, the company looks to cut costs when when it can because that comes out of the taxpayers. Yeah. So, you know, if they're ordering something equivalent to a wind mitigation for your house on the actual market with licensed inspectors, that would be about one hundred fifty a pop. Uh-huh. Right. Right. The citizens right now is contracting with unlicensed inspectors to do that for as low as thirty two dollars a pop okay. with these unlicensed inspectors, according to the contracts that they have that are publicly available. So that makes it more feasible to do 300,000. Right. The the, the the scale of it yeah. is, is a lot of what we're talking about. Perhaps not surprisingly, then, you found that the inspections by these unlicensed agents are not always top-notch quality, exactly. I mean, lots of errors. What were some of the most egregious issues, people like the, 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 the source in Fort Lauderdale you just pointed out before? What were some of those egregious issues people pointed out to you? You know, one one of them that didn't even make it into the story, but I'll I'll just talk about now is in in one of these reports, the the unlicensed inspector said that there was a water heater that didn't have the temperature and pressure release valve, right? Which is a big deal. You need a, a kind of valve to prevent some kind of uh, issue in your house. Okay. Um, Not a windstorm issue, but a homeowner's issue. Yeah, ex- yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the inspector took a photo of it, and in the photo. There's the valve, uh-huh. yeah. But they but they wrote 
there's no valve. So you look at it, you're like, what? <laughs> this person doesn't know what what this is. Then uh-huh. I mean, the, clearly they they're not familiar with what this is. Okay. And and then um, you know, with that same owner, homeowner saying there's no fire hydrant within a thousand feet, it's you could see it from the front door. It's right there. It's, and, and that <laughs> report had about twenty errors in it. We 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 counted. Right. And then there was a woman. Um, Melissa Morrow, Melissa Morrow of Palm, in, of Palm Harbor in it, Pinellas County. Yeah, right. And she, you know, she had, she has three black cats, and you know, she doesn't have the time to clean all the time. And the the inspector listed black cat hair in her crown molding as some kind of mold, fuzzy mold that's growing on her walls. Uh-huh. And um, you know, took took a photo from an from an angle outside where a tree that is actually belonging to her neighbors. It yeah. looks like it's hanging over her, her yeah, and, house. And that photo is in your, uh, on, on our site in your story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and she, she really, you know, once she saw those errors, she, um, she started the fight against them. Right. And she won the fight, right? She, she did win the fight. She was able to keep her, her policy intact by, by sort of, you know, standing up to this. Let's listen to Melissa Morrow of, of Palm Harbor, who dealt with one of these unlicensed inspections. I would have lost my house if I lost this coverage because I would not have been able to afford the policy premium, you know, because it had shot up so much. I'm Tim Paget. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about a WLRN investigation into the use of unlicensed home inspectors by Citizens Property Insurance. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, Danny, how did citizens respond when you asked them about this practice of not only ramping up home inspections this way, but also using unlicensed inspectors? On the one hand, I was I was pleased that that citizens, once I asked them directly about this, they acknowledged that they're using unlicensed inspectors. They said in no uncertain terms, yes, the field inspectors are unlicensed. Mm-hmm. However, the ultimate decision about the insurability is made by a licensed inspector, they assured me, and, and professional staff that they have. So they uh, were okay. forthright about it. Um, you know, and uh, on the other hand, when I asked them about the practice, why has it exploded so much? They said, well, you know, as the the amount of policies that they're underwriting has expanded. You know, some some companies have had to leave Florida. Right. And um, so Citizens actually receives a lot of policies without having inspected them before. Like if, if uh-huh. you're if you're tossed off of one of these companies, mm-hmm. Citizens just gets it tossed into their lap in, in, in some way. So they said we, we need data about this. Okay. That's, and a, it, that's a fair point. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's all, on the other hand, you know, it's always been since it was first discussed in these citizens meetings as a way to cut policies. Right. To, and and um, they just dropped 100,000 last month. Yeah. Right, right. They, they, they do not want all these policies. So they're trying to find any means to, to do it. And this program has been very effective in that. And, yeah. you know, in, in a report they, they issued in, um, in, in, in just July, it was almost 6% of all the, the inspections from this program resulted in cancellations mm-hmm. or um, policies not being re- renewed. We're talking about 300,000. That's, uh, you know, uh-huh. that's uh, like about 17,000 policies that have been canceled because of this. But to be fair, again, is citizens backing off when policyholders fight back like like um, uh, Melissa Morrow and, and, and point out these mistakes that the unlicensed inspectors are making? 
Right. Um, so so the, the company did send me some internal data. They say they take this very serious. Any any issue, any factual issue on these inspections, they take very serious. And out of the 200,000 of these inspections that were conducted between January and September of this year, mm-hmm. they said they received complaints about only 62 of them. So that, that is a very tiny percent. Yeah. I will underscore that's people that submitted complaints right who looked at the fine print who oh, looked yeah. at the fine print yeah. submitted complaints and actually pushed it mm-hmm. and out of those that they received citizens said they they did address it very quickly okay but now the contractor inspection company that citizens is using is Sutton Inspection Bureau of St. Petersburg how did they respond when you asked about their hiring and training methods so um i have to i have to admit i've never had this happen to me with a company ever in my history of reporting. Uh-huh. Um, they did not respond to calls. They did not respond to, to, to emails. We put in the story they did not respond because they didn't respond. Right. About two days after the story published earlier this this week, I get a letter uh-huh. to our offices here at WLRN, dropped on my desk from Sutton, and, and they wrote an actual snail mail letter saying, right. you know, we take this seriously and we don't have any other comment. And uh-huh. it was postmarked weeks ago. <laughs> and <laughs> okay. I don't understand why they didn't just send me an email or give me a call. But that, I mean, yeah, yeah. that is that is a new one. Right. Um, how are licensed inspectors in Florida taking this, by the way? V- very good question. Very important question. And after my investigation was published, um, it got a lot of eyes on it, and I've received many emails from licensed inspectors who take big issue with this. Mm-hmm. I mean, they undergo hours and hours of training to be certified and licensed. They they are they have their own association protecting their corner of the industry, and they have their professional um, reputations to uphold. Yeah, and and you know I I've received many emails from. License inspectors saying this is wrong. You know, this is why we have licensing. Well, let me go back to the Sutton response, though, that you got by snail mail uh, t- t- today. Um, mm-hmm. Did they address at all this issue of are, are they bringing their their people up to the standards of licensed inspectors? Or did they say or did they not address that? They they I asked them in what I originally asked about the trainings and they didn't respond to that at all. Okay. So they, right. I mean, they, they do mention that they do some training on their website because mm-hmm. they have a hire me section. It doesn't say anything about licensing, but it does say they give some kind of training. Mm-hmm. Now, should Florida homeowners who have citizens policies expect this sort of inspection to be coming their way in the near future? I would say yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in the process of when I was reporting on this story, I had uh, one good friend actually mention offhand that she got one of these letters when I wasn't even talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, after publishing, I heard from many people saying, I just got one of those inspections or we're, we're um, you know, expecting one of those because these, this is a lot, this is a major program that Citizens is running right now. Right. I mean, they, they, they are trying to get down to, what do you think is their goal? Right now, they're at about a little more than 1.3 million policies. What do you think Citizens is wanting to get down to at this, at this point? Honestly, we would have to ask them mm-hmm. to, d- directly, but um, a significant cut. I mean, they, over, over the last four years or so, they've more or less doubled. And they, they want to be back 
somewhere around to, to where they were. So they're trying to cut close to 50% of their policies. Yeah, and the new guideline is if you get dropped by citizens and, and, and you have to go to a private carrier, as long as the private carriers uh, is not 20% higher than what you were paying with citizens, you have to go with that private carrier. That's right. Right. So that, so this is all part of that that program. So finally, Danny, if, if this is the case, what's your advice to them about how to deal you know, your advice to these homeowners about how to deal with these inspections, not only them, but their insurance agents who are supposed to be their representatives in situations like this. They should be reading the fine print, too. Right. Yes. I mean, I think this is um, really one of those cases where everyone needs to do their due diligence. And, you know, it's one thing if you're making the assumption that whoever did this work is, is licensed. And, you know, the thing about licensing is you could lose your license. If you make errors, you really mess up. You could lose your license. Yeah. Um, so there's a certain amount of trust that goes into it that's built into that process. These people are not licensed. So when you get one of these inspections, everyone I've talked to says, read it very carefully. carefully. Yes. Make sure all the things on those reports is accurate. I've had people telling me the photos submitted onto it wasn't even their house. It was someone else's house. I mean, yeah. so there's obvious things and there's also... Very specific things. Look at it very carefully and, and truthfully yeah. talk to your insurance agent and mm -hmm. insurance agents. I know a lot of them are overwhelmed, but this they, is a, this is a real potential for, yep. you know, affecting people's lives. Good advice. Danny Rivero is an investigative reporter here at WLRN. Danny, great reporting as always. Thanks. Thanks, Tim. Still to come. Will Argentina elect a Trump wannabe as its next president? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. If you follow Latin America, you've likely heard this before. Argentina is in economic crisis. Its annual annual inflation rate today is more than 150 percent. Again, that's hardly new for Argentina, but this time the political consequences could be much different. On Sunday, Argentina will hold a runoff election for president. The candidate, narrowly leading in most polls, is a far right-wing congressman named Javier Millet. His agenda and style are similar to Donald Trump, whom Millet says he admires. Millet's opponent is economy minister Sergio Massa, who represents the ruling center-left Peronist coalition. The question is, will Argentines listen to Massa's appeals to let him restore stability, or are they fed up enough with Peronism to elect Millet, an erratic populist who brandishes a chainsaw at his campaign rallies and who, many political experts warn, could pose a threat to one of the Western Hemisphere's largest democracy, if he gets the keys to the Casa Rosada, Argentina's White House. Who will win the Argentine election? Are you part of the Argentine diaspora that will be voting here on Sunday? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to examine this pivotal Argentine vote is Dr. Laura Gomez Mera. She's an Argentina native and a political science professor at the University of Miami. Laura, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tim. 
we should remind people that this is a pretty important election for this hemisphere as well as Argentina. Argentina is the third largest economy in Latin America and the fourth largest democracy. So, Laura, what do you feel is at stake in this presidential election? Well, there, yes, I think there's a lot at stake and it's a very difficult situation for many Argentines that are going to the polls on Sunday. Um, the As you mentioned, the economy is undergoing a very severe economic crisis. And yes, this is something that Argentines are very used to by now, right. especially uh, even the inflation. I think the Perhaps the youngest people now who are, who are voting, people start voting at scene, mm-hmm. have never experienced this type of inflation. But I certainly have lived to, through two very severe crises in my lifetime. Yeah, and I think the, 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 la- the last bad one was about 25 years ago, no? Or, or no, the, about a generation the, ago, let's say, yeah. Yeah, so the last, the, the, the last one was 2001. Right. And mm-hmm. then before that, it was 1991 or 80, 19, the late, late 80s were very, very hard to, with very yeah. high levels of inflation. And yeah. since then, we had not seen this, this level of, of inflation. Mm-hmm. And the, I think that many people in Argentina right now feel that they are facing two very bad choices. Yes. Uh, <laughs> It's like, how do we choose the lesser of two evils? Mm-hmm. On the one hand, there is uh, the uh, the current economy mis- minister who has delivered the current disastrous economic results. Right. And but 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 also- to be fair, wasn't he also brought on by the current administration to try to fix the the, the current crisis, the, the, yes. the current disaster? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, the current yeah the disaster started. He came, I think it was July two thousand and. 2022 yeah. mm-hmm. and so yes that's true the but he is also he represents a political party that has been in power for 16 of exactly. the past 20 and I, and I, years and I, and I do want i do want to get to that um and then the other choice uh, you were about and to the say other, <laughs> yes the other choice is this uh, self um identifies anarcho um, the anarcho-capitalism, right. who is who has very right, far right-wing uh, ideals and who has a tendency to insult those who dare disagree or even interrupt him, including Pope, and, in, including Pope Francis, a fellow Argentine. Yes, exactly, including including him, and so there is. I, many people I've, I've talked to feel like they, there's an urgent need for a change, mm-hmm. but they are not sure this is the right change. Right. Now, you were, then, you, were, you were just recently yeah. in Argentina. Based on what you saw yes. and heard there, do you then have a guess as to what the outcome will be on Sunday? I... I From the start, I was very... I, I was very... I, I never thought that Millet would get this far, to be honest, in a country mm-hmm. like Argentina, who's very progressive socially and who uh, I, I thought that, I mean, his, his discourse is very, very, very uh, controversial, especially right. when it comes to, to denying um, human rights violations of the past. He's also... Right. He, deny, he denies that, the Argent, that Argentina's military dictatorship of the 1970s and 80s committed any atrocities when the fact is that dictatorship was responsible for about 30,000 murders or disappearances of civilians, right? Yeah, he, he, he 
contests the number. Uh, he and he also paints a different picture of something like a like a conflict between you know a gorilla uh, and and so he he has his own interpretation. Mm -hmm. uh, but those were things that you know it's it's not it, they have reemerged and it's not very helpful productive to go over that again. I right. think it's I mean I don't it doesn't matter how many people. Mm -hmm. suffered or, or died at this point it's better not to but he has kind of reignited all this debate well it's it's sort of and, it's sort of it's sort of reminiscent of how far right-wing president Jair bolsonaro in brazil recently uh was such an admirer of of that country's military dictatorship from from the 19 yes. uh, uh from the late 20th century yeah yes so he seems to be emulating a little bit of uh, bolsonaro and, and trump and mm -hmm. and it has actually helped like i said i wasn't I, I didn't expect him to get so much um support but mm -hmm. he did clearly he he's he, he took he got on something yeah no i mean as, as you and i have just pointed out argentines are no strangers to economic crisis but why do voters seem to be reacting to this particular crisis with enough anger that they would elect someone on the political fringes like Millet? I think it's tiredness, is is hopelessness, is the fact that the so it's not 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 only frustration with Peronism, but also with the other opposition party, the Juntos por el Cambio, which is this coalition that is more to the center mm -hmm. right, and but that includes elements more to the left, like the Union Civica Radical party. And that you may remember that that party did win the elections mm -hmm. in 1915, and in the Macri presidency was not much better. I mean, we weren't at this level of economic Mac malaise. Mac but Macri, Macri being the the previous president who was more to the right, more of a conservative. Yes, mm -hmm. and he and he ended up having to. He he wasn't able to implement a very sort of extreme adjustment or he didn't right. want to which is what Millet is proposing mm -hmm. he ended up having to go to the the IMF again and getting this right. humongous and, and, and again uh, Argentina has a lot of debt to the International Monetary Fund but now as you're saying the, yes. par the party in power now is the center-left Peronistas they're also known as the Justicialistas They've been the dominant political power in Argentina since democracy was restored there 40 years ago. In fact, they were the dominant party before the military dictatorship ruled Argentina from 1976 to 1983. But do you get the sense that their dominance is finally ending in Argentina? And, and if so, why? I... I I don't know if it's finally ending. I think I was surprised. The polls are very close, mm -hmm. and there's some polls that actually predict a Millet win. I don't know if it, it, I, I think that it, my sense is that many people who voted for Bullrich are going to vote blank. And that's going to help Massa. Bullrich, Bullrich being another conservative candidate who did not. The third candidate. Right, who was knocked yes. out in the first round of uh, last month. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so she, and but the, the thing is, Melee caught a deal with with uh, Bullrich and Macri, which is the. Right. And, and, the they, other and they, are they are supporting him now. Yeah. 
And so I think so a very important portion of the voters that supported her are going to go to Millet. Mm-hmm. And but there's a, a lot of people and there's actually the 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 coalition party that she represented eventually has broken because of that arrangement, that agreement with Millet. Right. And so the left wing part of that coalition will most not most, but many are going to vote for Massa. Others are not going to vote for Millet. Yeah. And so that's, so I don't know. I think the, it's going to be a very yeah, close. The math, the math looks, looks very, very close. But if Millet wins, is he the threat to Argentine democracy his critics say he is? As I mentioned, he's a great admirer of Donald Trump, and he definitely uses Trump's bullying political style. Um, but, you know, again, if he is elected, is he the threat to democracy that his critics say he is? Well, the one thing to bear in mind is that he's not going to have uh, control of Congress. Right. His, his, his political to... movement is relatively small in that regard. It's very small. It's, it's very small. Or he his party. will have mm-hmm. to. Yeah. And he has actually... Uh, argued that he's going to try to get all his proposals through Congress. And mm-hmm. only if that doesn't work, maybe uh, he will have referendums on some of these issues. Yeah. I think that a more, uh, perhaps a more problematic scenario would be that the there is a backlash to his if he wins what's going to happen oh, or okay. yeah. so on, the, the, the Peronist the, movement has a lot of, of control of, and, of, and they of, could they could put a lot of people in the streets right yeah um, yes I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Sunday's pivotal presidential runoff election in Argentina. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Uh, and, and I should mention, Laura, one, one of the things uh, Millet says he wants to do is, is things like abolish public health care and public education and the central bank. Uh, but again, as you point out, these are things he may not be able to do because he's really not going to have much leverage in, in, uh, in, in Argentina's Congress, right? It, it would be hard. I mean, he could yeah. he could use the presidential decrees. He could also always do that. Right. Um, I think that's actually. I mean, in a way, that would also harm um, democracy in, in some right. sort of ways. Like he would he would take away many social economic rights yeah. of people. Uh, but, so that's actually. Mm-hmm. Problematic. But Laura, what about the large Argentine diaspora here in South Florida, which you're a part of? I mean, my sense is that they, too, are exasperated with the Peronists. But do they really want a guy like Millet running their home country? So there's I, so I, you, I don't know if you've seen the the the, the results of the first round, but 56 percent of the voters in South Florida uh, elected or voted for Patricia Bullrich, so the the candidate that lost. Uh, But 38% supported Millet Mm -hmm. and only 4% supported Massa. So I don't know if if they, I think they would, they're ideally, they're here, people, Argentines in Miami would have gone for the third, this more centered 
central mm-hmm. candidate, Bullrich. But given the two options, I don't uh, think the Argentines in the U.S. would go for Massa, but I'm not, I don't know. I just feel like many people here are here because they, they. So it's not necessarily my case. I've lived in the U.S. for half, more than half my life. Many people came in 2001 or even re- more recently, running away from the Kirchner right. government. Running away, so, essentially, running away essentially from Peronism. Yes, and also we have to also think about Peronism is a very broad movement that it has more central, more right and left wing uh, options or sure. leaders. Oh and yeah, it's a very, Kirchnerism, very broad. Yeah. Yes, Kirchnerism is particularly left wing and, and extreme and, and very populist also, and so many people were very against. Uh, the Kirchner's. They actually, many people living in the U.S. Uh, from you know from Argentina went back during the Macri years, actually. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think yeah. that many people are what I've heard, but I have I don't really I haven't talked that much. But some people I know here in Miami right. mm-hmm. want change, and so yeah. that's their excuse. Okay, we want right. change. Better well, to have something new. Right. No. Good point. Uh, unfortunately, we we'll have to leave it there for time. Uh, Dr. Laura Gomez-Mera teaches political science at the University of Miami. Laura, many thanks for joining us. No, thank you. Finally on the Roundup, we want to remind you that this weekend marks the last few days of this year's Miami Book Fair, the 40th fair to be held since it debuted back in 1984. All this week, WLRN Sundial program has been interviewing featured authors, including award-winning Haitian novelist Edwige Danticat. And tomorrow at 1 p.m., Sundial host Carlos Frias will moderate a discussion with Miami author Carl Hyacin about his new book, Wrecker. When it comes to books, Florida and Miami have unfortunately been the focus of book-banning controversies this year. The Miami Book Fair is the antidote to all of that. If you care about books and reading and how crucial their uncensored exploration is to our culture and our democracy, I urge you to wander into downtown Miami this weekend to the Miami-Dade College campus and take in this celebrated celebration of the written word. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend and a happy Thanksgiving, and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado. WLRN Public Media.